traditional calendar, the day, of course, Christ enters Jerusalem uh, and begins the events, Gethsemane, his trial, and everything else that's going to culminate in him going to the cross. And we want to look at how these events fit into the big drama of God's plan for the world. And we want to see, we're going to see God helping us how his death is a drama and how it fits into the big story. You know, here at this church in the Bible College, uh, we and in both of them, we try to emphasize big story theology, big story teaching. The Bible is not a bunch of miscellaneous bits and pieces. It is a grand story. Act one, as it were. Obedience. Here we go. Come on. Here we go. Very good. Obedience. In the garden, we're going to see a new Adam. If we go, we won't look at it in great detail, but there's a passage in Mark 14. It's the Gethsemane scene. It's not for the faint of heart when we read it. Jesus himself says, I am greatly distressed Come on, buttons, let's go. Hello. I think maybe we've got a battery. That, oh, here we are, very good. He became greatly distressed and troubled. And notice what he says on the back of that. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Is he being melodramatic? I think not. I think those words represent what is in fact going on inside of him emotionally. Remember, Christ is fully flesh and blood. He's fully human, which means he has emotions and he knows what's coming. And contemplating that, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, to the point of death. I I am so distressed inside, I feel like I'm going to die. At one point, he falls to the ground. Mark even says he fell to the ground, probably prostrate. There we are. He says, let this cup pass from me. Now, there's emotion in that, but there's also something prophetic because if we go back to the prophets, go if you have a concordance at home, go and look up the word cup. And again, <laughs> the reference, references you'll get in the prophets to this idea of a cup, once again, are not for the faint of heart. It often or usually represents a cup of judgment that God assigns to his people when they are in rebellion, and he does this to bring his just judgment to them. And now that cup, which has in different ways been given to Israel in its past, like in the exile and whatnot, now that cup is coming to God's own son, and he knows it. So he says, let this cup pass from me. But he knows that if that in fact happens... He'll be short-circuiting his mission. So he says, yet not what I will. In other words, there's a father, there's a part of me that would say, 
Can we find some other way to do this where I don't have to drink the cup of judgment? There's a part of him that's saying that. You can't, there's no other way around this text. But above that, above what his human emotional nature is crying out, he knows there's something else he has to give himself to. So he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. What we're seeing here is that Jesus values the Father's will above his own. And I use the word value very deliberately. You know, we, it's interesting that what we value and why we value it, possessions or the praise of people, uh, financial security, there's different things people value. Getting our way, being proven to be right. You know, <laughs> let's be vulnerable. We all have things we, we value. And here we see Christ in this drama valuing what the Father wants above what he, at a purely human level, wants. Now here is why, in the big picture, this is so important. It's a reversal. It's a reversal of another story of a man in a garden. That's why it's no accident the gospel writers highlight it was the garden of Gethsemane. Because earlier in biblical history, much earlier, Adam, in another garden, set his will above God's. He valued his own will above God's will. And that led to countless heart-rending, heart-breaking, destructive consequences in biblical and in world history. A fateful moment there in Eden. Adam set his will over God's. Now, in another garden, deliberately God has set this up, I want to suggest, a new Adam comes to reverse what the first Adam did. We have a new Adam, which means we have a new beginning. A chance to start over. Someone, I don't know who first used this illustration, of two men leading teams of mountain climbers up a mountain. Visualize perhaps the Matterhorn or something like that. It's not not something you just casually walk up. It needs to be climbed. And two teams climbing the mountain, both of which have a leader, and you know how they're, they're all hooked together with lines and whatnot. I don't know the proper terms of the, the equipment that they use, but visualize two teams. Each has a leader. They're each making their way up to the summit or trying to. Now, one preacher some generations ago compared biblical history as a window to world history to two humanities both trying to ascend this mountain. The leader of one team is Adam. And people have their, they're hooked into, as as it were, Adam's belt, if you can sort of use our imaginations here for a moment. They're all hooked to him. The other team is being led by another Adam, the new Adam. Whose belt? are we attached to? If we're attached to the old Adam, we know where that takes us. 
its ultimate loss. But if we will put our trust in the new Adam, something amazing happens. Because God steps in. This is all in Romans 5, where we, we won't have to, don't have time to look at that today. Have a look at it later. When, in the, our own faltering, bumbling way, we put our trust in Jesus, even if your understanding of what that means is very, very preliminary and small. I got saved when I was 17. All I understood, I could write it in one sentence, he died for my sins. That's all I got. Maybe that's all you've got at the moment. That, you know what? When you hold on to that and surrender to him, God steps in. He, he comes up to that cliff, halfway up the Matterhorn. He takes your line and unhooks you from Adam and hooks you onto the back of Christ's belt. Yeah. Something monumental changes. Maybe you didn't understand it in those terms at that point. Maybe you don't understand it in those terms even this morning yet. Well, it's true. You're in a new Adam. And the former Adam, the original Adam, that means ultimate loss. In the new Adam, it's ultimate hope. Ultimate hope of heaven, of eternal life, of being in the new earth when Christ comes back to restore and create the new earth, being a part of all that, and hope moment by moment. I'm going to get through this. (laughs) Whatever it might be, because I'm hooked on to the new Adam. Are you with me? I'm attached to someone who always wins. We're going to come back to stuff that goes on where it seems like it's not going very easily and how we hold on to the new Adam. Stay with this drama. The first part of the drama is obedience in the garden, a new Adam. Now we want to look, go a couple of days after that, or maybe the very next day, rather, to what happens at the actual death of Jesus and how it becomes for us not just a new Adam, but a new Exodus. The gospel writers go out of their way to stress something. They go out of their way to stress quite a few things. One of them is the timing of all of these events. Jesus died at Passover. Yesterday, I I counted up references, and I'm not even sure I got all of them, but I found 20, at least, 20 references in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John corporately that to the fact that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and these dramatic, there's that word again, these events unfold during Passover. And It's like the gospel writers are highlighting something. They're wanting to say, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, do you get it? For them, for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Passover, and we're going to look in a moment what Passover was all about. Passover was the key to Jesus' mission. Let's linger briefly at what the original Passover was about. And that helps us understand the new Passover that Christ will bring. The original Passover was the lead up to Israel leaving Egypt. That original Passover said, get ready for the exodus. Pack your bags. We're out of here. 
It began on that night, blood on the doors and all of that. But that, if you read Exodus chapters 12, 13 and following in particular, the Passover sacrifices and all that, it wasn't just to save the firstborn. It was to get all Israel ready to leave. The Passover was the beginning of the Exodus and the Passover, the original one, said, get ready for the Exodus. And Passover became a regular ordinance in in Israel, as you know. It's like the ordinance of the Lord's Supper in the church. That Passover, they recalled it every year, and every time they did it, it said, remember the night that God got us ready for the Exodus. Now, Jesus' death was not just any sacrifice. There's been lots of people that were martyred for good causes. He was one of them. But he, of course, is in a class entirely by himself. One of the reasons that's the case is that his death was, indeed, the ultimate Passover sacrifice. A couple of ways that the scriptures highlight this. In Mark 14... Do forgive this little gadget here. In Mark 14, where we see Jesus and his disciples gathering together for what will be Jesus' last Passover meal. He takes the bread, breaks it, this is my body, and he takes the wine, the Passover wine, and he says, this is my blood. So by taking, it was Passover wine in the middle of a Passover meal, But what's he do? He adds that all-important word. I've got it underlined there. This is my blood. The Passover and what it's represented for 14 centuries is coming to fulfillment in me. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians. Christ, says Paul, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Actually, you know, I'll take a risk and throw a teeny bit of Greek and I get irritated with Bible teachers that throw Greek around but I'm going to do it a little bit in that verse in 1 Corinthians 5 it doesn't use the word lamb it just says Passover Christ our Passover I like that the event is fulfilled in him Christ our Passover has been sacrificed now what that means we've just got through saying the original Passover was the lead up to something beyond itself it wasn't just the blood on the doors and God sparing the, the Israelite firstborn, it was that, but that was the lead up to the crossing of the Red Sea and all that came out of that. And similarly now, because Christ is the new Passover, we're going to see that in his death, a new exodus begins. If you go home today with one phrase in your brain, let it be that one, new exodus. Can we remember that? New Exodus. His death, his Passover sacrifice, says the same thing the original Passover did. It said, get ready. Now let's go back. Brief history lesson. Come on. There we go. The original Passover said several things. One of which was rescue from judgment. Moses told the Israelites, sacrifice a lamb, 
take its blood painted on the lintels around your door, and in that ninth of the ten, uh, no, this the tenth of the tenth judgment. Sorry, it was ten judgments in a row, and this is the tenth. When that dreadful judgment unfolded, your firstborn sons will be spared because God would see the blood on the door and he would pass over that house. It was about rescue from judgment. Now, fast forward to Christ fulfilling that. In Matthew's version of the Lord's Supper, which was a Passover meal, Christ says, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Only Matthew records those words at the Last Supper, but they're hugely important. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Were the Israelite firstborn any more virtuous than the Egyptian firstborn? Tell me. No, they were not. They were spared because of the blood on the door. And now you're spared because of the blood of Jesus poured out for you. Paul picks up on this later. Wonderful here. In Romans we're told that because of Christ and by faith in him, judgment passes over us and we have what he calls peace with God. The original Passover meant something else. After they left Egypt, there came the release of the supernatural power of God in the form of fire. You remember that great image? This is in Revelation, uh, pardon me, (laughs) Revelation. Getting my books confused. Exodus, Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 12 is the night of the Passover. But Exodus 13 is when Pharaoh finally says, all right, just go before your your God blows up my country entirely. So they leave. It's the middle of the night. Not always the most auspicious time to move your house and move your family and move your kids and everything else. How do they know which way to go? Well, Exodus 13 and this artist's impression of it give us the answer as they left Egypt the area in Egypt where they lived called Goshen, this flagrantly, blatantly, manifestly supernatural event of a pillar of flame appears. It's the presence of God. In New Testament jargon, we would say it was the Holy Spirit came. And that column of flame led them out of Egypt. When daylight came the next morning, it morphed into a pillar of cloud. And it was always there. Daylight cloud during the night, the cloud morphed back into the pillar of fire. Now, that's the original Passover, and we're trying to establish that the events around Christ's death are the fulfillment of all of that. So where's this pillar of cloud show up? Well, here's where it shows up. Acts 2. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. The flame now is not a pillar of flame that goes ahead of us down Botley Road. (laughs) Although I could do with that some mornings trying to get to work. The fire now is something inside of us, Christ's Holy Spirit, that he sent after he became the Passover sacrifice. Do you see how this all fits together? 
Passover sacrifice in Egypt, pillar of flame. Ultimate Passover sacrifice when Jesus goes to the cross, the fire of the Holy Spirit. That means we have a power not our own. It wasn't down to the Israelites themselves to find their way as they left Egypt and to know exactly which way to go. They didn't have satin navs and they didn't need one. This, that pillar of fire was their satin nav. That meant there was a power that wasn't their own that was available to them. And praise the Lord this morning, that power is available to you. If, there's, if you're conscious this morning of a distinct lack of a power other than a power of, of a, distinct, a distinct lack of power from beyond yourself, you come on up, we're going to pray for you. Because yeah. part of being a Christian means you have access, you have a right in God to call on him to put the, that fire in you. The drama continues. First, Exodus and the first Passover were all about release from bondage. I love this next one. I painted this, as you may be interested in knowing. (laughs) That's actually Steve Jones in the middle. You can't recognize him. He's facing away from the camera, away from the picture. They get to to the edge of the sea. Pharaoh's army, of course, by this point, because Pharaoh changed his mind for the 37th time and he decided he didn't want them to leave. After all, he brings his army, his chariots, they're chasing them, so they've got that army in back of them and a rather large, formidable body of water in front of them. What do they do? Moses cries out to God and God says, lift up that staff in your hand, which is what we see in the picture, and the sea splits open. This is an amazing moment. The sea divides to the left and to the right, and it's right out of the first chapter of Genesis where God says, let the seas be gathered and let the dry ground appear. Genesis 1 verse 9. And now we're going right back to the creation of the world. God is doing a new creation for his people, Israel. And the phrase dry ground is the same in the Hebrew in Genesis 1-9 as it is in Exodus chapter 14. They walked across on dry ground. Do you like that? Because God's making a new creation for his covenant people. You have been set free from sin, Paul says. They were set free from Pharaoh. I wonder when that moment came, up to that point in those 430 years, how many bricks All the Israelites made. You need one hot calculator to figure it out. Brick making for Pharaoh was over. Bondage to him in Exodus 20, the time in Egypt is called the time in the house of bondage. And now it's over. Release from bondage. Now Paul picks up on that language. We're not set free from brick making for a particular pagan king. We're set free, according to Romans, from our own sin. It means this. Sin, I can walk away from it. Suppose this is Egypt. The moment comes, here's the sea, but the sea is now divided in two. And because of God's power in doing that, I can walk away from Egypt. I can walk away. You know, they had to make a choice. 
to follow Moses, you know, there's walls of water, we're told, and the picture represents that on both sides. And you think, what if we get halfway across and Moses is, forgets to hold the staff up and the water crashes in? You know, it was an act of faith. They had to walk through on dry ground. They had to walk away from Egypt. But praise the Lord, we can walk away from our sin because of Christ. We're set free. Probably every one of us here this morning have something we know we need to walk away from. It's, it's an act of, of turning our backs. No, sir. I'm going to turn from that thing, and I'm going to walk away from it. If you're in the middle of something you need to turn away from, welcome to the new exodus, because the path is open in front of you. Finally, the drama part three starts with a strange Aramaic word. I suspect most or all of us this morning know this word. It's Golgotha. It's Aramaic for skull. A bit of a gruesome word. And skull is the place where they crucified people outside of Jerusalem. There's debates to this day among archaeologists as to where exactly Golgotha was. There's two main sites that are sort of in the running for being the original place. But in those days, people called it Golgotha. Interesting to contemplate how it got that name. One theory is because the Romans regularly used it for executions, they would sometimes, just to sort of to the Israelites, because the Israelites were sensitive about this sort of thing, they would leave the corpses there, including skulls and whatnot, and you would see skulls lying around. So it came to be called Skull Hill or something like that, the place of the skull. It's also interesting to contemplate, now this is a little bit pushing the edge, but it is possible that in some mysterious way, God worked this out the way he did, that his this supreme sacrifice and defeat of the devil would take place at a place to do with a head. Because in Genesis 3, God says that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Are you with me? Remember that scene? If you've seen the Mel Gibson film, it's my favorite moment in the whole thing. It happens in the first four minutes. And Satan is there in the garden and all of a sudden he, it's actually a she, it's an actress that plays the devil, but Satan looks down like this at his own, her own feet and you see this serpent. Remember that moment, that movement coming out from underneath Satan's robes and this snake is slithering across the ground over toward Jesus who was on the ground as we saw earlier. And it comes up over his wrist and you're wondering, is it going to bite him? Now he just stands up and you're still wondering what's going to happen because that thing is down slithering around his feet now. And then they turn up the woofers in the theater when this happens. And all of a sudden, unexpectedly, it's... I love it. It's the end of that snake. He crushed the serpent's head. Now, you know, he didn't... He began doing that. Part of his victory, no doubt, of course, is in in Gethsemane, definitely. Because he said no to the devil and yes to his father. But... Now the real moment comes at the place of the skull. 
Let's look at one of the gospel accounts of what happens in a key moment here. And Jesus uttered, he's on the cross now. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, representative of the empire, note this, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, that's basically saying when the centurion saw how he died, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There's about 37 sermons in those verses. So I'll have mercy on you. I want to concentrate on one point. It's this business about the curtain. This splendid, elegant curtain, of course, that was in the temple. It had been in the original temple that Solomon had made, now destroyed, now it was remade. Before that, there had been a curtain in the, uh, in the tabernacle that God instructed Moses to make. In the plan of the tabernacle and temple and the meaning of it, the curtain hid God. The manifest presence of God, according to the Old Testament, was no small matter. It was no joke. You may remember, I think it's in Exodus 32, I wouldn't vouch for the chapter number, but Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says to Moses, "Uh, are you sure... (laughs) have you taken out your life insurance policy recently? (laughs) Moses, do you know what it would do if you saw my full, unveiled, undiminished glory? Your brother Aaron would have to come up here with a dustpan and brush and sweep up what was left of you. God's glory is like this holy, searing fire. You you can't look at it. When uh, Saul, to be called Paul, sees a tiny, momentary, brief glimpse of the ascended heavenly Christ, what happens to him? He's struck struck blind. There's a sense in which the curtain was there to protect the priests. Are you with me? The curtain hid God. And if the curtain opened, we'd see God. Now, Jesus dies, and by dying, he opens the curtain. If you look at the way that scene we just read from Mark is constructed, his die, his, he cries out, his, he, he utters a loud cry, and he breathes his last, and that leads, it's a cause and effect event, that leads to the tearing of the curtain. But notice what happens. Praise the Lord. What do we see? If we're thinking Old Testament temple imagery and so forth, we're expecting through the ripped open curtain. Whatever may or may not have gone on in the temple at that moment, Mark, as the narrator there, doesn't linger there because he doesn't want us to be thinking about what the people in the temple right at that moment may or may not have seen. We do see what God is like. We don't see what the people 
in the temple saw. We see what the centurion saw. Because when you open the curtain, you see what God is like. Let this sink in. In Romans chapter eight, Paul talks about what God is like. He says this. He who did not spare his own son. He's talking here in this verse about the character of God. He's convinced that God is radically committed to his people. But note how he knows it. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Think of that image we had there a moment ago. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Is God committed to us? The answer is that picture we just saw. The answer is what the centurion saw. We need to know what God is like. When, for example, the winds are against us. I've always loved the story in Mark 6 of, the, of Christ walking on the sea. Jesus, at the start of that story, he makes the disciples get into the boat. And then he goes up on a mountain to pray. So they set off across the sea at his instruction. This is not some crazy idea they got into their heads. They're on this trip across the Sea of Galilee at Christ's own instruction. If there was any 12 men that were definitely in the, the will of God, it's them. And they get pretty, pretty soon after they leave, we're told a storm blows up, comes along, and the wind was against them. Go figure. Here's, let's say, here's where they're sent off on their journey. They get into the boat, and Jesus says, go across to the other side. So they're rowing like this. And the wind is coming from that direction, trying to push them back this way. These guys can be forgiven for thinking, wait a minute, something doesn't make sense here. He's the Lord of creation. He already calmed the storm earlier in the story. And now the winds that he rebuked, now they're blowing us the other way. Boy, are my arms tired. Can I encourage you, if you have got opposing winds, it does not mean you're out of God's will. I don't have a glib, clever explanation why the winds are there, except that sometimes God just asks us to pull back on that oar and be faithful and to keep rowing. When that happens, we need to know what God is like. What's he like? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all all things? We need to know what God is like when we lose a job. 
It's happened to more than one of us here. We need to know that when the doctor comes back with a bad report, like it's cancer. We need to know what God's like when we all of a sudden realize the depth of our need. You think, hey, gee, there's more gunk in my heart than I knew. You sign up for Celebrate Recovery or something like that, and you think, ay, 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 I've got a ways to go. What will keep you in that? Knowing what God is like. How do we know what God is like? You look at what the centurion saw. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We need to know what God is like. This applies to some of us here when we're recovering from a painful past. Maybe you've got baggage or scars. We need to know what God is like when it's time to make that difficult phone call that you've been procrastinating. You pick up the phone, you start punching, I almost almost said dial, I'm giving away my age here. (laughs) You start punching in the number, you got to know what God is like. We've got to know what God is like when. You can go up to the screen and write your own thing on there. People who understand, we draw to conclusion. People who understand that God's glory is revealed in what the centurion saw can face anything. Because they know God's with them. Because they know the truth of Romans 8.32. Let's review. The drama means if I'm a Christian, I'm attached to the new Adam's belt. And I'm going to get to the top of that mountain. Matterhorn, K2, Everest, whatever. The drama means that the new exodus has come. It means rescue from judgment. If you've never become a Christian, you know, God's judgment, divine judgment, is a very real and sobering thing. It's not some weird idea theologians invented. It's real in Scripture. But we're rescued from it by the new Passover. That's the only way. The new exodus has come. It means the release of God's power. The pillar of fire and then the flame at Pentecost that comes and lives right inside of us. A power in us that's not of us. The new exodus means release from bondage. Whatever is going on over here, I can turn away from it and start walking. Away from the sin, away from the past, toward what God has. And the drama means, and I think we need to take this out of here today in a special way, we can see life in the light of Romans 8.32. I'll tax your patience by reciting it once more. He who began, no, that's Philippians 1.6, never mind. Um, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Here's an image to take home today. Amen.